Welcome to Big Questions. This is Cal Fussman. You know, I wasn't going to air this podcast exactly this week, but I noticed a story about Donald Trump joining the live streaming video game platform known as Twitch to connect with a whole new group of voters. And I realized, whoa, this is how he got elected the first time. That's how he became president. He was always a step ahead of Hillary on the internet. So I better pay attention to this. Little background, what happened was this. I was in Phoenix speaking to the EO group there. I love Entrepreneur's Organization and I love going to Phoenix because that means I can stop in at the office of my sponsor, Sportique. I can catch up with my pals, Matt Altman and Jason Franklin. And Matt threw a little soiree at his home the night before the speaking engagement. And some wonderful and intriguing folks came by to say hello. One of them was a guy named Scott Novus. Now, as you'll hear, Scott used to work as vice president and general manager at Disney Interactive Studios for a while. But now he's founded a few new companies. One is called Game Truck, and it basically throws birthday parties for kids that bring fun on video games straight to the backyard. He's impacted millions of kids this way. Now, why is this interesting to me? Well, that's the point. I never would have been remotely interested in anything surrounding video games in the past. My wife... La Claudia and I were always trying to get my son off the video games and out exercising or having fun the old school way. But there was nothing we could do about it. Ultimately, the video games won. And this is not only my son, this is the world. So I became curious about Scott's business and then the conversation took a sharp turn When out of nowhere, Scott asked me a question. What's the one thing that can put you out of business? Nobody had ever asked me that question before. I've been so busy trying to get my speaking and consulting business off the ground, and now that it's off the ground, scaling it, why on earth would I ask myself what could put it out of business? I had to think about the answer to that question. I did, and I said... Young people who don't want to hear my message. When I said that, I felt a surge of relief because a lot of the core audience of Big Question consists of young people who are looking for some kind of mentorship. Maybe that they're looking to make old school connections. Maybe that they like old school storytelling when they hear it. I didn't understand what it was at first, but all I had to do was look at the faces and know There are a lot of young people out there who want to connect with me. I get people in Africa and Asia asking me to mentor them. And I wish I had the time to help them all. I do what I can. Point is, I know they're out there. I know they're with me on my journey. But then Scott started telling me how these video gamers communicate. And I realized, oh man. If I don't add a touch of their repertoire into my game, I will definitely be
be cut out down the road. So, day after Matt's dinner, I pulled out my podcast equipment and sat with Scott for a half an hour or so, and we talked it over. My naivete may seem comical to many, but I just spoke at a conference where the chief marketing officer at IBM announced that in 20 years, no job will be untouched by artificial intelligence. So I ain't that naive. Last week, I learned from the growth hacker, Brendan Kane that if I want to succeed in business, I got to be thinking ahead to my goal, then going back to the starting line and executing my journey. I just can't go on an adventure and wait to react to the things that might happen. Well, this week, I learned that I have to consider what might take me down, way down the road, into that plan. I realize that this podcast is veering along the path of my journey in business. There may be some listeners out there who are looking to hear Kobe Bryant, Tim Ferriss, Seth Godin, or Pharrell. Here's the thing. Down the road, I'm going to be making a conscious effort to bring you the wisdom of people you've all heard of. So for now, I'm grateful to everyone who's coming along on the journey. You're watching me grow in real time. And there are some great lessons for everyone to take out of this journey. I know this because you tell me in your emails. What might put you out of business down the road is a good question to ask yourself. It'll prod you to plan ahead. If that question makes you uncomfortable, then you know what? Put on your Sportiques when you ask it because Sportique threads bring comfort to any situation. And that's why I'm wearing my comfy tee as I do this intro. Check out sportique.com, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E.com, and use the offer code CAL for a 20% discount on hoodies, sweatpants, and tees, and check out those chinos. They're new. This is a great company that's always taken you to good places. The people who work there are my friends. You go into their office and there might be NBA players looking over the upcoming models. I'm not reading off advertising copy here. My passion for Sportique is authentic as it gets. When I say Roman comfort, I mean it. So check out Sportique.com. And now let's get straight to a conversation about... I can't believe I'm saying these words. Video games. But hey, anything is possible. I just spoke at the Wharton School of Business. Me, Cal, at the Wharton School of Business. Let me tell you something. The best is yet to come. So let's get straight to those video games. All right, Scott. So we just met last night, and you fascinated me with a a question uh, that was pretty simple. The question of what could possibly put you out of business in the future? That's the question. When you're sitting there looking at your company and you're trying to survive, and it probably counts for lots of things, but as an entrepreneur, it's foremost in my mind, is what would end you? What would put you out of business? And it's a good way to think of how would you disrupt your own business? And uh, you know, so the idea, 
What is the saying? If somebody's going to eat your lunch, it might as well be you. <laughs> this I love. So before I ask you about your background, sure. it occurred to me that if I was thinking ahead and asking myself that question, it would be that the younger generation did not want to listen to my message. Ah, that's a that's an interesting thing. Is it that they don't want to listen to your message, or they don't want to listen to you? Well, the crazy thing about it is, among millennials and I think a little younger, mm -hmm. I have a huge following. That is interesting, uh, and it's because a lot of things, but I think a big part of it is they crave authenticity. Oh, yeah. And they do love storytelling. Everybody says they have no attention span, but when you start to tell them a good story, they do lean in. And as you can see on their viewing habits, uh, when they find something that they love, they binge watch it. Yes. They, yep. it, it's not like they have no attention span then. They'll have a 10-hour attention span a day to take in something that they want and love. You know, I've thought a lot about that. And I think Ryan Holiday had this great uh, phrase called outrage porn. And so if you're trying to track somebody's attention, we're always after novelty. And so you have this little death spiral going on right now of, if I can get you upset, I can get your attention. And that's what I need. I just need to get your attention because then I'll get a click. And if I get a click, I can monetize it. So a lot of what we're doing now is this quick hit. Can I get your attention? Can I get your attention? But it's fatiguing. At some point, you, I think people want to go beyond that and get to something that feels real. And all the research I've done is we have three kinds of memory. We have uh, implicit memory, muscle memory, like how to ride a bike. And then we have semantic memory, which has to do with how we store facts and figures. Like, what's the population in the United States? When was the Declaration of Independence um, signed? But the one that's really interesting is episodic memory. And that is the memory that we use that it gives structure to our life. And that is how we file away the experiences that we use. And why it's so very interesting, there's an amazing series that just came out on Netflix about how memory works. And while we use it, we think it's like this great file cabinet. That's not its real function. It appears that the real function of memory is to give you the tools to project your future. And so if you don't have the right stories, your stories frame how you can think about and will feel about your future. It's the fuel of your imagination. And so wow, stories so are you super powerful. If you don't have the right stories, you're not going to have the right future. Right. Your, oh, man. Your imagination will be bounded by the stories that you can draw upon to predict and predict the future. They did an MRI on this where they showed people's brains. Uh, sorry if I'm giving away the episode, but it was amazing. Where, you know, they're like, hey, recall a story. Then they're like, imagine what you're going to do tomorrow. It's the same circuitry in your head. That's why your memories are very fallible because that's not their primary function is to be an accurate recorder. Their primary function is to help us predict how we're going to move forward so we can make decisions now that will give us a better future. Like the whole, like you could make an argument, and some people have, the, the history of man is about our discovery of the future. Our ability to make decisions today that will produce outcomes in the future.
Stories are hugely important to that because that's how we file that information away so we can imagine what we can become. Were you always a story guy? Oh my God, I'm an, I have two engineering degrees. No. No. Um, no, I'm a the- You're a numbers guy. I, well, there's this idea of, uh, my dad used to say there's two types of people, those who divide the world into two types of people and those who don't. <laughs> I split it into innovation engineers and optimization engineers. There are people that are numbers guys that love to get every ounce of performance. I was more interested in the making. So I'm a spatial thinker, so I'm a visual thinker. And so I tend to look at things and reassemble them and imagine how they could work um, but story was something I had to get very intentional about and learn about because you can make a thing, but if you can't translate it for somebody, if they don't know why they want it, if they don't know what it means to them, if they don't have the background to understand what it could be, then you're shouting in, in, a, in the dark, like n nobody cares. And so if I want to make the world a better place, I have to get good at explaining what this could mean to you. What I've been learning is the most effective way to convey that is story, and uh, and I'm practicing it. I'm trying to learn. I think there's skills. I think it's a learnable skill, but it's not my natural mode. So where did you grow up? Where did you get your degrees, and where did that lead you? So this might be a surprise to the people in uh, New York and California, but there's some states between those two. <laughs> and uh, I grew up in the Midwest in Michigan. I like to say it was a great place to be from. But I knew I wanted to go uh, to a Sunbelt state. So I went to Arizona State and got two engineering degrees there. And what I loved about engineering is you could start with almost nothing and make something. So I had this vision of being a maker. And maybe I was on the early edge of that, starting with, you know, we could make this. Like I always said, uh, I got into software development. Ultimately, video games is where it led me. And I loved game developers because I felt they're the most optimistic people on the planet. Because hundreds of times a day, they hit F5, compile. This time it'll run. This time it'll work. All day long, seven days a week. It's like you talk about baseball players dealing with failure. Spend time around engineers, especially game developers. It is relentless failure. You're like, that didn't work. I thought it was going to work. And you go back and you dig in. You're like, this time. What? What happened? And there's sort of an optimistic creativity around problem solving and trying to create uh, experiences. And I really, uh, most of my time was spent in the communications industry. I worked at Motorola. I worked on displays and graphics technology. And the leap into video games was to get away from the constraints of, of hardware and get into the world where we're literally taking a thought out of your head and putting it in a format that somebody else can play with it. It's instantiated thought. It's crazy. I mean, what is software? It's a bunch of electrons bumping into each other. But we can structure them in a way that people can sit down and play with it. And what really grasped me about, so I guess there's a story element of video games, storytelling in the second person. It's your story. You are in control. You grab the mouse. You grab the joystick. You're driving the car. And I think early on, a lot of uh, storytelling in video games was very uh, overly simplistic because those are the stories young kids tell. All the obvious choices have to work and lead to a satisfying outcome. And so games kind of got pilloried for being shallow, but they're stuck in that I have to give you control of the camera and the character and make it work for you and enjoyable. And it took a long time for them to begin to develop that medium into what it is today. And so it's, it seems like, I don't know how old are you? 
Uh, 53. 53. So when I think of video games, I generally don't think of 53-year-olds. Yeah, no kidding, right? And and <laughs> here's the thing about it. Uh, I, I remember uh, interviewing President Carter going to his house and him joking how his grandkids had come over and they were playing video games with him and how he was laughing at how little he can do with it. You know, right. here's a guy who's president and his, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah. So your, a little accomplished, right? Yeah. Much. And, and not only that, he was in, in charge of a nuclear submarine. I mean, he, he was a very accomplished dude. And here he is, can't play even match up to his grandkids in a video game. Right. And I, I never went in that direction. And we watch my son playing and it would drive my wife crazy. Well, why are you wasting your time? <laughs> and then you know what happened? What happened? She needed a laser procedure on her eye. And she was talking to the doctor who was gonna do the procedure. And he said to her, oh, when I was a kid, I played video games all, all the time. Right. And that's how I got so good at this, doing this procedure. Boy, I bet a light bulb went off for her then. And it did for me because I always pushed aside the game culture. And then we had this very little introduction and immediately got into talking about video games and you're enlightening me as to how huge they were and how they were going to take over entertainment and society. Well, it certainly seems like that's the trajectory they're on. And I forget exactly how we got launched into that entire topic. But when you're looking at the larger, I'm big into macro trends. You know, that was a thing Peter Drucker used to do is like, what's driving that's happening in society? And there's a couple of things that are happening. And I think the, the comment I made last night was when we started teaching a generation of kids to stop being consumers, we all assumed that meant stuff. It's not just things they buy. It is consumption of other people's content. It is sitting and passively watching a video. And the explosion of YouTube, explosion of lots of things, blogs, whatever, video games represent the current best evolution of how large groups of people can not only participate through viewership, but they can interact with the host in real time as they're doing something. They're on the cutting edge of creating dynamic environments that the audience is actively participating in. They're no longer passive consumers. So they're participating in creating the event as the event unfolds with the host. And that simple idea, I have to believe when you start digging into the numbers is going to explode through all of entertainment. So when we talk about, there's this old idea of separating, you go make your show, you broadcast it, then you deal with your audience. What does the world look like when you overlay those two and they happen in real time? That's what video gaming is doing right now. Wow. So if I'm thinking into the future, when I'm giving a talk, I want to transition into making it an interactive experience if I'm going to follow this trend. Right. As opposed to standing up, telling my stories, making people laugh, making people cry, getting applause and walking off. 
Right. You're beginning to see the early trends of this through live streaming and Facebook and other things where in the middle of the broadcast, people can give likes and hearts while you're giving your talk. And the really accomplished speakers are getting really good at having monitors and staff monitoring the environment and the comments and giving feedback. So the audience is affecting. And I think you know this from almost anything you do that's a performance is when you figure out, oh, people are responding to that that line. And so the next time you give the talk, you may put more emphasis on that line in an area where they're sure it was dead, you drop it. They're doing that in real time now. So some of these people where we may not appreciate the skills, I think we were talking about some of the most popular gamers are not actually the best gamers. But what they're really, really good at is the real time integration of audience feedback to their performance. So they're playing a video game. Yep. And they are getting messages sent to them by fans. Yep. They're usually talking and wisecracks. So imagine Spider-Man, right? What is Spider-Man known for? He's always busting out one-liners and being funny in the middle of a battle. So there's this sort of like real-life superhero feeling of you're competing and you're being funny and you're observing and you're thinking out loud. And the audience is responding to that stream. And as they send messages and notes and stickers and whatever up, then the really the artist, the performer, really the performer sees what people are responding to and then moves more in that direction, gives them more of what they're responding to. And there's an idea that if you could break through to get a comment that actually causes the performer to laugh or to chuckle or smile or get a reaction, you've won a contest. And the contest is with all the other people to get through all the crowd and the noise, and you've risen above to connect with that individual in real time. Wow. So everybody is involved. Right. You're, because even if, you're, if your comment doesn't get to the top, you are like that engine here who hit F5 and it didn't work. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, going to get I, it next time. Exactly. I'll get another one. I'll get another because you see people do it. People you know have done it. So it's this acceleration wow. of like fan clubs and people used to write letters and send them in and then they get a letter back. Now it's real time while you're in the middle of it, while you're engaged. Like we're creating this entertainment together. All right. So I have to learn to be much more interactive. That's what I'm taking from this. Well, I think the opportunity is for you to look at that mechanism, because this is what happens with all of technology when it really explodes. People go, well, what does that mean in my space? How do I translate that over? A term people are probably starting to hear is gamification, where one of the best examples of that, I think, was the watch that tracked your steps. I can't think of the name off the top of my head, but it was one of the first pieces of wearable technology, and they made you push for 10,000 steps. And then Apple integrated it, but the, and I, Samsung, everybody has it now. But the core idea was you were getting real-time feedback on how you were living your life. And millions of people suddenly started walking more. They started going, oh, I got to get my steps in. It became a thing. Like everybody knew the whole idea of I'm tracking my progression towards some relatively arbitrary goal that will be beneficial to me has been in games for 40 years. And somebody took that concept and said, I can apply that in the real world. And that's, we're living in a really, really interesting time where open source, what used to be how still software is made, then went to the maker movement. So 3D printers and modeling and people can make their own things. And now it's becoming very personal. Like what is the idea that I could make with all the tools available today to create an experience that groups of people can engage in? 
So when you look at gaming, they're on the cutting edge of interactive entertainment between the audience and the performer. Okay, so I got to jump into this space to at least take a look at it, understand what they're doing, know who's doing it. Yeah, what do you, here's the funny thing. What do you have to lose? If you do it and you fail, well, F5, you're kind of, F5. Yeah, you're there right now. You're not doing it now. And if you do it and it doesn't work, you're at the same place you are now. All you've lost is some time. But my experience is when you get in motion and you try these kind of oddball things, you learn stuff. And it goes back to the beginning of our conversation. You have a new story. The new story opens up the possibility for you to imagine a new future. And now you may discover a path nobody saw. And that's where innovation comes from. So getting out there and getting involved and getting in motion generates the stories that fills your memory and lets you imagine a different future. Peter Thiel said, by his definition, the future is when things are different. So if you don't see your world being different when you imagine your future, the future is very far away for you. But if you can imagine things being different relatively soon, the future is very close for you. So if you want to have a future where things are different, you've got to go after experiences that expand the stories and memories and ideas and things you can imagine. They have to be plausible. That's why the experience of motion is so important. It's not abstract anymore. You've done it. You've played with it. You've learned about it. You've got your hands dirty with it. Now it saturates all of your senses and you're like, okay, this will be real when I do this. And that's part of this whole engine. So I would encourage you to dig into it. So I go into this whole gaming phenomenon. Who do I, I don't know anything about it. Who do <laughs> I, who's the big stars? Cause you're telling me that the biggest stars in gaming are making way more money than Tom Brady, the quarterback of the Patriots. There's that, a lot of public numbers out there and I don't know, you know, I was given some inside information from people that are involved in the industry. So I'm like, man, should I be talking about this? But when you have, let's say Ninja, super famous, Shroud, super famous. Um, when Ninja moved from uh, Twitch to Mixer, he pulled 500,000 viewers with him like that day. Remember what it was like when Howard Stern moved to Satellite XM? Correct, I do. That's what we're talking about. Things are happening on a scale where millions of people are following these personalities around, and it becomes easy to begin to monetize what are millions of viewers worth. When you go back and look at the ratings where the Seinfeld show, they got paid $5 million an episode for what viewership, you have gamers pulling down 40 million viewers. What's that viewership worth? it's easy to imagine they could be in the $5 million per performance or higher because the sheer global numbers they're able to influence and attract. So the numbers are huge, but it's also because the technology has collapsed all of the broadcast infrastructure, the, the high rises in New York and San Francisco full of advertising executives and sales executives goes away. The buildings go away, the maintenance goes away. It's a server somewhere else, streaming data, and it's, iTunes of television broadcasting. Now, an artist can work directly with an audience and that revenue stream isn't being distributed over tens of thousands of employees, it's being distributed over a few hundred. And so there's more, I don't know if more money's available, but it's being distributed differently. So 
you're interesting because you think of who is at the pinnacle and that's your career. You've never been afraid to go after the biggest names. I mean, some of the stories you were telling last night of the people you've interviewed, the experiences you have, I'd be terrified to walk into a room with that individual and you, what, hung out with Muhammad Ali for a week? So you think on that scale, I approach it from my background and my background is where's an angle I can get involved that's that I'm comfortable with that's on my bubble. And what's your angle? I've always found, and I guess this comes from my experience in that I love coaching kids and my experience with video games has been very positive. I think it's a very, it's a technology that stimulates your brain the way your brain likes to learn. So if you're trying to help somebody achieve their potential and you have this super powerful technology that helps brains learn, why wouldn't you combine those two? So all of my companies are around how do we explore the richness of that idea and embrace the technology instead of be afraid of it or instead of think it's trivial or stuff. It's a waste of time. Like, well, number one takeaway for your audience, super important. Please stop telling your kids gaming is a waste of time because they don't hear that. What is happening for them in today's games, they're attacking hard problems, they're learning skills, and they're persisting until they overcome. So they don't hear games are a waste of time. They hear attacking hard problems, learning skills, and persisting is a waste of time. So why would they ever, if the thing they care about most is a waste of time, attacking hard problems, learning skills, and persisting is a waste of time, why would they ever apply that anywhere else in their life? Man, you just did one of those judo flips. (laughs) So what I encourage everybody I talk to is, one, play games with your kids, please. Nine out of 10 parents will watch a kid have a basketball game, a soccer game, a baseball game, but only one out of 10 will play with them. Get in there and play with them fail in front of them. Get over your fear that you have to be good at it. What matters is spend time where their interests are and find out what's happening for them firsthand. Get in. Two, talk to them like they're an employee. Talk to them like they're a project manager. Ask them questions like, what's hard about this for you? How did you stay in this so long? Like, What was so difficult? How did you overcome that problem? Speak to them like they're a person attacking a hard problem that's really interesting and they haven't quite figured it out you will watch the type of conversations you have with your kids transform radically. And your understanding about the experience they're having will begin to unfold in a way that you'll be like, holy cow, I had no idea what was happening. Because the games today, Cal, are exponentially more sophisticated than ones we played as kids. Wow, now you got me so curious. (laughs) Now I'm ready to run in head first, find out what these games are about and understand the questions that you just asked and where they could take you. Because if I always thought, and I guess this is a sign of the times, sure, that if you wanted to communicate with a kid during adolescence when that communication was tough, good thing to do is go to a movie and watch the story play out and maybe the same themes that the characters went through or things that, the teenagers going through, and you can talk them out through what just transpired on the screen. But that's kind of old school based on what you're telling me. And if you took it into video games, it would go to a deeper place. Well, I think there's still validity in that model you're talking about. What I'm trying to say is you went and had a shared experience and then you wanted to talk about the shared experience. The challenge, the missed opportunity with video games, which is why I'm like, we should embrace them is first, parents are refusing to participate. 
So you're missing the opportunity to share the experience. And then secondly, instead of talking through what the experience could mean to your child, you're going, that's a waste of time. Yeah. So what you to make it a level playing field would be for the movie analogy as well, you go watch a movie, I'm not gonna go. When you come back, I'm gonna tell you that was a total waste of time. Even though I bought you the movie ticket, because who's buying the games for the kids? They don't have jobs. Right. So you get this weird split where parents don't, you know, they want their kids to be happy. And then they're afraid that what they're doing is hurting them. And and it's like, like I my if I had a passion, it would be let me get useful information to the parents to take advantage of this staggering technology that's in their house. They got a $40 billion a year industry that is just trying to figure this out. And it's super hard. Only a handful of games get to the level of a Fortnite or get to the level of a Smash Brothers or get to the level of Overwatch or whatever your kid is into. It's really hard. But when they do, you have to understand these are hundreds of professionals, engineers, psychologists, artists, some of the most talented people on the planet are trying to solve this problem of capturing your attention and sustaining it, but building up within you a sense of intrinsic motivation. What I mean by that is a lot of games feel like jobs. Imagine a job you would pay to work at. That's the problem the game industry is solving. I got to create something so compelling, you'll pay me to do it. (laughs) Well, they're not seeing it as a job. They're seeing it as a game. As a game. And suddenly it's enjoyable. I feel engaged. And there's a competition and my friends are around me. I I get it. I'm connected. So you have a business that creates parties for kids. Yes. One of your businesses. Yeah, my first uh, foray into entrepreneurship was, well, my first real foray was, man, I forgot about my wife told me, was I did a a book smart technical books in college. I was Amazon before the internet. Um, Turns out Amazon's way better with the internet than mail. Um, But later I started a company called Game Truck. And so the whole idea was that video games had lost the arcade. Arcades had died. And as a form of entertainment or art, I tend to think games are art, we lost our public venue to experience it together. So, you know, movie theaters for movies, concert halls for music. Where's the, what's the community space for video games? And it used to be arcades, it was over. And so I wanted to reimagine the space I could play the best games with my best friends because that's what I grew up with. And I wanted my kids to have that experience. And the idea was a living room on wheels because we become cocooned, we stay in our homes, we don't travel as much. And the best games at that time, and I still think it's true today, are on consoles. And so we would bring over enough TVs, consoles, controllers, and copies of games for everybody to play. And that business has been going for almost 15 years. We've done a quarter of a million parties. We've entertained 13 million a kids. A quarter of a million parties. Yeah, it's uh, it's quite a thing. <laughs> it's like I had, we franchised the concept. Uh, we're in 25 states. There's uh, 120 trailers on the road. And we have an amazing partnership with Nintendo, which is one of those dream comes true of going to their headquarters in Redmond is just super cool. Um, and we get to talk to them and see what games are coming. And it's just amazing to be part of the industry in that way. Um, the, the new company that, I, that I've started working on is the focus of my attention is called Bravis. It's kind of a smash up of Bravely Courageous. Um, and we wanted to deliver three things. What we really wanted to do was explore the idea of could we really embrace like esports as a sport, a better sport, a sport 
that would teach all the lessons of sports. I, I'm a big fan of John Wooden. And I think I told you I'd coached in Little League for 15 years, president, the whole thing. But what I, what I, what I learned was quit worrying about the outcomes and focus on the process. And what he really said was the pinnacle of his pyramid of success was what he called competitive excellence. And I came to understand it as being your best when your best is most needed. And I'm like, that's worthwhile. That's what we should be doing. It gets pretty heavy with the psychology of it. It turns out competition, I believe, is baked into our biology, our psychology, and our culture. And we've gotten a little sideways with it. But when it's done right, balanced competition produces better outcomes. And what it really means is human beings need each other to push each other to be the best we're capable of being. And that's the function of sports. Prepare us for the future. Teach us how to overcome our fears. Teach us how to grow. Teach us how to confront difficult challenges. We don't know what the outcome will be, but bring our best to that problem and we'll live with the results. We will be our best when our best is most needed. I never said we'd win, but if we all bring our best when it's most needed, we have our best chance of winning. So when I started looking into what esports was, I think this is why we're seeing it explode. Our kids are intuiting that their future looks way more like a video game than any arena sport we have right now. I, I can't remember the last time, if ever, I had to throw an object at somebody at 90 miles an hour, or I had to catch something thrown at me from 60 yards away. The, I've never used it. Well, maybe I've used a stick at work a few times, but not very often. We have these, this idolization of very long physical attributes, and there, there's good reasons to do that. But if sports is supposed to prepare us for the future, eSports was, well, let's start with the big one. Boys and girls compete together as equals. I mean, segregation of men and women is illegal like everywhere except in sports. So why don't we have a sport where it's truly a level playing field? Esports does that too. There's no bench. I don't have a bench at my company. I don't have a room full of people <laughs> waiting for an opportunity to make a contribution. Wow. Everybody oh, contributes. Yeah. Everybody on the team yeah. makes a difference, right? Oh, man. You so, know what? Every point you're making, I'm just like, check, check, check. check. There's... I don't. How about technology? Like everything we do, every company I go, every nonprofit, everybody's dealing with technology on an everyday basis. I take technology into a regular sport and I'm cheating. So how are we supposed to get good at it if we're not allowed to use it? So we go down that list. And one of the ones that is super important to me, and we focus on inclusion, which we articulate as yes, you can play, is this idea of the intrinsic respect of the individual. Because what I think a lot of these kids deeply understand about the future of the global economy is tomorrow, I, say I'm competing with you today, right? tomorrow I might be on your team or you might be on mine. Wow. And so this fluidity of intrinsic respect of an effort well given translates that the, I recognize that while I might lose to you, you will help me get better because you will push my internal edge and I can help you get better by competing with you. And so that, what we are trying to do is through our coaching staff, and this is the other part, probably for the first time, maybe ever, we are able to hire and attract adults that know more about the games than the kids. So we can reintroduce adults as mentors and leaders and guides and role models to help these kids learn a growth mindset while they're dealing with difficult challenges. And what's really amazing, um, I didn't expect this to work, our coaches coach the entire league, so we don't get the crazy volunteer parent thing going on, and they coach everybody up. So the kids form their own teams. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, we used to go out and there were no adults, 
Yeah, we chose sides. Yeah, we chose sides. We right. figured it out, right? right? Yeah. Everybody played. There were things went wrong, things went right. And so but- this is a return to that. And, and we're throwing away this model of everything is organized for the kids and they show up. And <laughs> is, okay. If you talk to most adults, especially Americans, the most stressful thing for them is unstructured free time. Like it just stresses them out. Like, oh, I'm wasting time. Like I should be doing something. They get antsy. What do kids need? Unstructured free time. Right. They need to play. They need to explore the boundaries. They need to be able to yeah. experiment. And well, you, you go out and look at some basketball courts. I, sometimes as I'm driving by, there's nobody there. I know where they are. <laughs> I got a pretty good guess. I can't say definitively, but right. I'll bet. Well, you know what? <laughs> I got what, what you've done is two things. And I, I really would love to talk to you more about this. I got to run to give a speech. Oh, yeah. No, which for sure. I can assure you is going to be more interactive because in this conversation, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do it because I only got like 10 minutes to prepare. But I'm going to make it more interactive and I am going to dive into this because I need to know the future. Well, you know, the old saying, the best way to predict the future is to make it. So, hey, if there's anything I could do to help you, please don't hesitate uh, to ask. I mean, that's a passion of mine is to help people embrace this technology and use it for good. Use it to unlock the power of it to create the transformation you're looking to create. Well, three years ago, I couldn't summon an Uber or a Lyft by myself. I didn't know how to tweet. Now I put out a tweet every day. Nice. Uber, Lyft. I just got the woven calendar. It's this new calendar that's at the cutting edge. I'm ahead of everybody now. Right on. But I realize, okay, it's time for me to dive into the video game world, understand it, because understanding that means I'm going to understand the future. And thank you for opening the door to that for me. You are most welcome. And one reason I want to encourage you is after listening to you, I think the video game culture is desperate for your storytelling. I think that there's value you bring that has been lost in that world or at least overlooked and uh, better stories. We need better stories. And uh, that's your skill and that's your gift. So please bring it. I'm on my way. (laughs) All right, I got to go speak. Thank you so much. It was really great getting to know you, and we are going to take this forward together. Awesome. Thank you, Cal. All right. Cheers. That about wraps it up. want to thank Tim Ferriss for once again taking me to new places with this podcast. want to thank the Wharton School of Business for having me in to give interviewing advice for its students who are about to head off on job interviews. And thank you, Julia Lynn, for coming up after my talk to say hello. Now, because of you, Julia, I'm going to have state-of-the-art business cards to go along with my woven state-of-the-art calendar. Oh, yeah. This ain't stopping there. Old school Cal is now getting some advice on (laughs) e-commerce. Well, I just can't thank you all enough. And not only all the young people who step forward and help this old school guy out, 
but I want to thank the old school PR girl, Gabby Romero, for emailing in and letting me know that she wants to come along on the journey. So stick with me, Gabby. We're headed to the future. And send me your address because I want you headed to the future in comfort in some Sportique threads. So Gabby, go to Sportique.com, look it over, that's S-P-O-R-T-I-Q-E, and tell me what you like most and I'll have it sent to you. That way, you're going to roam in comfort straight into the future right alongside me in your Sportiques. I'm telling you, the best is yet to come. Cheers!